2024, whether we like it or not, is going to be one of significant change for the life of the church that meets here. 50% of the pastors will be leaving for other responsibilities, Ashley to Norwich, me to Hong Kong. So there'll have to be changes, and there'll have to be rearrangements. And maybe you don't cope with change well. So for you, maybe there's a swirl of emotions. Maybe there'll be a sense of confusion or a sense of anxiety or a sense of fear of what the future might hold for the fellowship or maybe a sense of excitement for what lies ahead and what God is going to do. So on this first Sunday of the new year, this is probably the ideal time to ask some big questions. Where are we going as a church? Why are we here as a church? What's our aim or vision for the future? You know, if we were to write it down now, if I was to ask you to put a sentence or two as to why we are here and what we do, what would you write? You see, it can be a very valid exercise. Now, I'm aware that already some of you are beginning to break out in a cold sweat when I suggest such an exercise because this is what happens at work. And you're expected to know and to repeat your company's goals like some sort of modern mantra. Indeed, it's common business practice for a company to state their goals so that everyone knows what they're all working towards. And you'll no doubt be aware that the reason businesses have such goals is so that everyone's energy can be directed, everyone's vision can be focused, and everyone can keep a common purpose in view. They're able to say, this is what we do, this is what we're about. And in the life of any church, there can be great wisdom in adopting some of these particular practices by regularly asking ourselves the question, what's our aim? What's our purpose? Why are we doing this? Indeed, it can be quite frightening to do this with some of our well-established practices and meetings. You know, why do we do it? Why do we meet like that? What's the biblical principle behind it? But I'll go further. It's not only legitimate for a church to have aims, it's vital. And the reason I say that is because the church isn't some sort of static organization. It's, it's described as a developing organism. And if it's to be moving, if the church is to be moving, and if the church is to be growing, it's essential that we are always asking the question, well, where are we going? What are we developing into? Indeed, when we come to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we discover that he describes the church not only as a body that's growing, but he also describes it as a building that's under construction. There in Ephesians 2. Verses 21 to 22, in him, that is Christ, the whole building is joined together 
and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too. And the word there in the Greek is in the plural. You too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Therefore, it doesn't surprise us that as Paul goes on to talk about spiritual gifts and spiritual growth in chapter 4, that he tells us what the aim of the church should be. What's the purpose of those gifts? What's the direction of growth? How do they all fit in? Well, there in Ephesians 4, he gives us the answer, verses 11 to 13. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now, I have to say, in the NIV translation that we're looking at, that I've just used on screen, it doesn't quite bring out the clear threefold division that Paul talks about when he is describing the purpose of the church. For in that one verse, verse 13, he uses on three occasions a little Greek word. It's the word ace, if, you, if I was to put it into English lettering, E-I-S, ace, which means uh, towards or into, to introduce the threefold goals of the church. Have a listen to the more literal, albeit a more clunky, ESV translation of those verses, and you'll see what I mean. So again, I'll read verses 11 to 13, but this time from the ESV. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain. Now here's the first one. Two the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to, ace, mature manhood, to, that's the third occurrence of that word ace, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So what I want to do this morning is unpack the three goals that every church should be striving towards. What Charlotte Chapel should be striving towards what we should be working towards. So number one is spiritual unity. Spiritual unity. Paul says, two, unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. Spiritual unity. Now let me say three things under this heading. First of all, it is clear that this is unity based upon truth. You see, there's so much pressure these days to unite with people of all different shades. It seems to be integral to the way that our society operates today. We're to accept everyone and to, we're to reject none. We're to celebrate and honor the choices made by others. But Paul here speaks of the basis of true unity. He says it's the faith, unity in the faith. And when Paul uses that expression, the faith, he is using a shorthand way of describing core gospel truths. 
In other words, you see, there are those essential, primary, recognizable truths that form the foundation for our faith. So, for example, where the divinity of Jesus Christ is denied or his sufficient substitutionary death is ignored, then there can be no unity in the way that the Bible describes unity. Indeed, the Apostle Paul regards deviation from the true faith so seriously that he says those who teach a different gospel are under God's curse. I suppose if you want a a summary of the true Christian faith, I suppose we could say this, that Christians are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed by Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. The great solas, as they're known, of the Reformation. Saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed by Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. This is, as it were, a summary, a description of the faith that's outlined in God's Word. And where gospel essentials are shared, then we must unite actively. We may not agree on all the secondary issues, such as baptism, the second coming, spiritual gifts, or church polity. But where we are united in the faith, in the gospel, the essential gospel truths, we should delight with our brothers and sisters and seek gospel growth together. It is unity based upon truth, based upon the gospel. But also, we can say this, this is unity expressed through love. Unity expressed through love. You see, Paul here is writing in the context of God giving human spiritual gifts to the church. He describes apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers. And as these different people gifts do their work, which is building up the diverse body of Christ so that each one within that body can use their own God-given gifts, the goal is not chaos. The goal is spiritual unity. You see, spiritual gifts are given to unite us, not to divide us. God's purpose for our fellowship is that there might be heartfelt, genuine unity as each speaks the truth in love. See, if there are divisions, if there's bitterness, then let's be clear that they form no part of God's plan for this church. There's no excuse for such things. They must be dealt with. They must be repented of. They do not further God's work. They only slow its progress. That's why the gathering of the church together can be such a powerful gospel tool. Different people, different backgrounds, different educational achievements, different ages, different life experiences, different economic positions, but all loving and accepting and blessing one another with genuine humility and grace. That's the way that Jesus is seen. That's the remarkable testimony to a divided and fractured and self-seeking world. 
It's the gathering of God's people that confirms gospel words, that confirms gospel truth, that displays a unity that the world cannot replicate. You see, the world has all its various societies and clubs and groups, and they, as it were, divide and splinter from one another. You may be a heart supporter, you may be a hip supporter, you may be Labour, you may be SNP, you may be Tory, and we've got all these different camps. But here in the Church of Jesus Christ, this is one of the most diverse and united gatherings that you will find in this city. Because here we are, people who've been united by the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is a unity and a love which is remarkable. We are so different from each other in so many different ways. But God's grace binds us together. And can I just say in passing, you may be here. And you may not be a believer. You may not be a follower of Jesus Christ yet. And you've noticed something. Maybe you're seeking for something. Maybe you feel empty. Maybe the things that you pursued. Maybe as you looked at the truths of new atheism and you realized that it was empty and was not satisfying. And you're looking for for that meaning and for that purpose. Can I just say... We want to point you to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one in whom we find our hope. And if you can make it to this coming Friday for the first of three sessions that will be running on three successive Fridays, come along to the Hope Explained, Hope Explored course. Uh, Cards down there. Go and talk to someone. We would love to be able to commend the Lord Jesus Christ to you. The gospel that does such a remarkable work. Unity expressed through love. But thirdly, there is unity enhanced by experience. Unity enhanced by experience. Because did you notice Paul places together spiritual unity and knowledge of God's Son? And when he talks about knowledge, the knowledge of God's Son, he doesn't use the ordinary Greek word that you would uh, have thought he might have used for knowledge, the Greek word gnosis, but he uses a special word, epignosis which carries the sense of a full and experienced knowledge. Not just knowing certain facts with your head, but living them out, feeling them, feeling that knowledge in every area of your life. You see, the church will never have living, vibrant unity if its members are content with cold doctrine alone. Rather, when there is in the fellowship a desire for a deeper, more real, more personal knowledge and experience of Christ, then the real unity won't be far behind. That's why our small group gatherings for study and prayer are an integral part of our church life. It's it's where this is actually worked out where we share with one another what God is doing and what God is saying and how God is helping us and blessing us and where we, we share one another's burdens, we pray for one another's burdens and we tell one another what God has been saying to us through his word. If you're not a member, if you're a church member here and you're not a member of a growth group, why not? Brothers, sisters, this is vital, this is essential to our life as a church if we're to be the people that God expects us to be. Why don't, again, you go to the Connect Corner and just say, look, I need to take this further. It is unity enhanced by experience. And my prayer for each one of us, my prayer for me, my prayer for you, 
is that we would just be growing more and more in love with Jesus. Oh, that we would know the Word and that we would have a good, clear knowledge of the Word, but our hearts would be gripped by the truths that we read and understand. Spiritual unity. The second goal of the church that Paul outlines is spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity. He says, to, ace, to, mature manhood. Now, so often people associate maturity with being boring or bald or grey or grim or something only possible after your 50th birthday. You know, then you have become mature. But, but my friends, this is so wrong because the Greek word for maturity that Paul uses here is the word teleos, which has a sense of reaching the desired end. When you have fulfilled your design, then you are mature. Let me try and illustrate it. Forgive me if I've uh, used this illustration uh, here before, but it seems to suit the case so well. I've, I have a number of fellows who come up to me afterwards and go, yeah. You see, if a plug needs changing, if a fuse has gone in a plug, and for those of you younger, yes, there are fuses in plugs, and you need at times to uh, change them, if you can change them by unscrewing it. Now, what will you do? Well, if you're like me, you, you realize that your toolbox is hidden away. It's where Kath likes it tidied up, you know, in the most inaccessible place in our house. So I go, oh, I can't be bothered to get a screwdriver out to do the job. And so what do you do? Guys, you've done this. You go to the cutlery drawer. And you open the cutlery drawer and you look for a knife which is as close to a screwdriver as you can possibly find. And you take the knife out and you get the plug and you start doing the work. But it takes ages. You could have got that toolbox out about four or five times in the time it takes you to do that. You see, when the knife is being used in that way, it is being immature. It is not fulfilling what it was designed to do. It's designed to cut bread, cut your meals, spread your butter or marge or whatever. That's when it's mature, when it does what it was designed to do. If you get the screwdriver out and you use the screwdriver to undo the screws, then that screwdriver is being mature. It's what it was designed to do. You see, in other words, a Christian is mature when they are doing what God intends them to do, what God has designed them to do, what God has gifted them to do. And Paul has already reminded the Ephesians that God has something planned for every one of his children. Back in chapter 2, verse 10, he writes, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. And actually in the section that we're looking at here in chapter 4, he goes on to say this in verse 16, from him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. As each part does its work. So could I say this? If God has called you to welcome people at the door and give out books, do it. Don't preach. You see, the danger is you think, oh, spiritual maturity, it's when you stand up the front of Charlotte Chapel and you preach. Wow, you must be spiritually mature to, to do that. And I'll be spiritually mature if I could stand up here and 
preach. No, 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 no. If God has gifted you and called you to welcome folks warmly and to give out those Bibles and just to have that smile and that welcome, when you do that, you are being spiritually mature. If you were to come up here and preach, you would be spiritually immature because that's not what God has called you to do. You see, it should be the aim of every fellowship to see that the whole body is functioning as God intends. Each gift, each ability being used for the glory of God. My brother and sister, if you're here this morning, you're a church member, could I just ask, what, how are your gifts being used? How are you serving the body? How are you ministering to the body? How are you being mature in the way that Paul encourages you to be? You see, the church is not a theater for inactive participation. It's not just a case of we come in, we sit down, we absorb, we go out. No, this is not a theater for inactive participation, but a dynamic body where every believer is called upon to serve in the way that God intends. Spiritual maturity. The last goal that Paul outlines here is that of spiritual conformity. Spiritual conformity. Because he says, to, third time that little Greek word, ace, appears, to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now that sounds complicated. It sounds like one of those pious, you know, and cliched phrases that you can get in Christian speak. So what's Paul saying? What does he mean? Well, actually, he's already written about the fullness of Christ in this letter. You just go back to Ephesians 1, verses 22 to 23, where it says, And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body. The church, are you following here? The church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So the fullness of Christ is the church. In other words, if you want to see Jesus today, where should you look? The church. As John Stott puts it, as his glory filled the Jerusalem temple, so today Jesus Christ, who is the glory of God, fills the church by his Spirit. So if you want to see Jesus today, where should you look? Where's the physical representation of Christ? As it were, where's his body? It's the church. It's, it's us. It's his people, especially when we gather together. So the third goal of our fellowship is to be like Jesus. To reflect his loving, merciful, holy, gracious character in everything that's said and done. We're to so operate as an active, unified, self-giving, loving fellowship that when the world looks on, it will see something supernatural. Something humanly inexplicable. Something so radically different from the clubs and gatherings that society has created for its own convenience. You see, just as when 
people came across Jesus 2,000 years ago, they were either drawn to him or else they were convicted by his words and character, so our church should be provoking a reaction in this community. For whatever they said about Christ, they couldn't ignore him. But today it seems the church in general has so lost its vital edge that it's become sidelined as an irrelevance. My friends, may it never be true here. So will you aim for those things? Unity. Maturity. Conformity. For these things matter. And I have to tell you that our corporate response to them will have a direct bearing upon the honor and glory of Christ that extends so much wider than our city or even our nation. Have a look at Ephesians 3 verse 10. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. This shows, not just here, not just in the West End, not just in Edinburgh, not just in Scotland, not just in the UK, not just in Europe. This has a testimony in the heavenly realms. Do you realize that your response, the way that you act, the way that you love as a a member of the church that's, that's gathered here. This is a witness in the heavenly realms. This matters. Church matters. And if you're one of God's children, you're part of the church, we so hope that you are in membership with us, that you've officially lined yourself up with us. For this matters for your good, and for the glory of God. The band's going to be coming up, and as the band comes up, we're just going to see a video, a TikTok video, of a guy called Stephen Foster. And what he says makes something of the point I'm trying to convey. If I'm honest, I never really liked the church. I didn't even really like Christians that much. I used to think of it like a package deal. Like, you get Jesus... And so you get the church and Christians thrown. It's just part of the package. And uh, there are some bits you like, Jesus, some bits you don't like so much. It's like the church and Christians um, used to find that a bit annoying. But I'd turn up the church and go through it. But I didn't really enjoy going to church. And then one day, uh, I was at the back of our church in East London, and someone said to me, oh, we need help to run the coffee team. And I was like, I was like working like 70, 80 hour a week. I'm like, what? And they were like, yeah, we, Steve, we really need your help running the coffee team on a Sunday. And I was thinking, I'm a barrister, I'm not a barista. Like, I've got a job, I don't need another job to run a coffee team. But I just, you know, sometimes you, you just can't even think of what to say. So I was like, okay, I'll do it, I'll do it, okay. And, and I instantly thought, why did I do that? So I turned up next week, like, you know, trying to get the cups and everything, get the coffee right. As I handed these cups to people, Something really changed in me. I found myself, as I handed coffee to these people, growing in love for them. I was like, these people are amazing. Like, this is this extraordinarily diverse community. It's been gathered from across the area, probably not another place that looks as diverse and integrated as this. This is a miracle. And then I, even people I found a little bit more frustrating and complicated, as I handed them their coffee, I kind of grew in love for them. And I kind of basically fell in love with the church 
And then I kind of went back to the person who'd asked me to do it. I said, we need a new coffee machine. We need better beans. We need better mugs. Like, we, come on, these are amazing people. I want this to be the best coffee that they get. You know, they, they're coming to church on a Sunday morning. I got more and more passionate. I started to build a team to serve coffee on a Sunday morning. I sometimes say, making coffee changed my life because I fell in love with the Church of Jesus Christ. I didn't realize why it was special. I didn't realize why it mattered. And as I made coffee for people, I suddenly realized, oh, the church is like the bride of Jesus Christ. It's like the thing he gave himself for. Like the church is God's plan for the salvation of the world. There's no plan B, and God is going to build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So like, God is putting all his eggs in the church basket. And I realized over those few weeks, there's a beautiful thing here. Yes, it messes up. Yes, it makes mistakes. You'll never find a perfect church, but it's a beautiful thing. And I thought, that's what I want to spend my life building. We're going to stand and sing together. May it be the response of our hearts. Lord of the church, we pray for our renewing. Please stand.
We're coming to a time of communion when we again remember what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us. In fact, what we are going to do is we're going to share in something that has been done by Christian believers over the last 2,000 years. Down these millennia, down the centuries, those who love Jesus have gathered together and they've broken bread and they've drunk wine and they've remembered Jesus. They've remembered that they are sinners, that once they were lost, but now they have found a saviour because of his cross work on Calvary. And we continue to stand in that stream. It spans the years. And it spans the miles. Some of you here, this is not your country of birth. But you know that back in your country of birth, people will be taking communion and remembering Jesus. It spans the years, it spans the miles, it embraces us. What a privilege for us to take communion. Paul wrote, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. What a privilege, and yet I have to say to you, if you are not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, this isn't for you. We don't want to encourage you in any form of hypocrisy. We would just ask that you would pass it by. And, and could I say, if you are here and you are not in good fellowship and standing with your brothers and sisters in Christ, then this passage is also clear that you have to deal with that first before you can ever celebrate what Jesus has done. Make sure your hearts are right before him. We have been made new in Christ, complete in Christ. If you're rejoicing in that and living it out, then join us together around the family meal. Let me pray. Father, we thank you again so much for this wonderful opportunity to join the church down the centuries, to stand in that stream, as it were, and celebrate the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he has been gathering for himself people from all over the globe. Thank you that... When he returns, there will be people from every tribe and tongue and language around the throne of heaven who have been saved and rescued by his cross work. Lord, thank you 
And so as we take this bread that speaks to us of his broken body, as we drink the wine that speaks to us of his shed blood, Father, in the same way that these tiny elements, in a little way, minister to us physically, may the spiritual truths that they contain minister to us in far greater and deeper ways. And we ask it for your glory. Amen. So when the bread comes around, as it will do in a moment or two, um, when you serve the bread, take it, and could I suggest you eat it there and then, when you've been served. Eat it and use those moments of quiet in your heart to give thanks to God for what he has done. And when that has been served, I will then be inviting the stewards to distribute the wine as well. So let's take and eat. In the same way after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And as the cup is brought round, uh, would you just please retain it so that when everyone is served, we'll be able to drink together as an act of our unity in the Lord Jesus Christ.
Let's drink and give thanks. Sometimes on occasions like this, I like to use uh, one of the prayers that is found in a book called The Valley of Vision, which is a book that contains Puritan prayers and devotions. And I'm just going to read one of these prayers that seems to be appropriate for this time of year. It was written uh, about 400 years ago, so some of the language is a bit old-fashioned. But hear the heart behind O love beyond compare, thou art good when thou givest, when thou takest away, when the sun shines upon me, when night gathers over me. Thou hast loved me before the foundation of the world, and in love didst redeem my soul. Thou dost love me still, in spite of my hard heart, in gratitude, distrust. Thy goodness has been with me another year, leading me through a twisting wilderness, in retreat, helping me to advance, when beaten back, making sure headway. Thy goodness will be with me in the year ahead. I hoist sail and draw up anchor, with thee as the blessed pilot of my future as of my past. I bless thee that thou hast veiled my eyes to the waters ahead. If thou hast appointed storms of tribulation, thou wilt be with me in them. If I have to pass through tempests of persecution and temptation, I shall not drown. If I am to die, I shall see thy face the sooner. If a painful end is to be my lot, grant me grace that my faith fail not. If I am to be cast aside from the service I love, I can make no stipulation. Only glorify thyself in me, whether in comfort or trial. As a chosen vessel, meet always for thy use. Amen. We're going to sing as we close. Worthy is the Lamb. Mm -hmm. 